Hello, we're back. Your favorite podcast about music and capitalism. Saxon and Sam, as always. And today we have an interview for you with Alex Safe Cummings. She is an associate professor and director of the graduate studies in the history department at Georgia State University. But specifically, we're going to be talking to her about her first book, which came out in 2013, called Democracy of Sound, Music Piracy, and the Remaking of American Copyright in the 20th Century. So we're going to talk a lot about bootleggers and copyright law. And but, pirates, yeah, and mixtapes, and Napster. It's like a good. It's a genuinely good episode. We're excited about this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But like, uh, before we jump in, you know, we we do the usual contextualizing as we always do. So, Sam, like, wh- why did you reach out to Professor Cummings about this book and and uh, want to bring it to the audience of Money for Nothing? I really like this book a lot, and this has been on kind of like one of my like. Uh, to reach out to lists since I first read it about about a year ago. And basically I really like it because I think it does a really nice job of contextualizing in like a, a long-term way some of the dynamics that we talk about a lot about on the show and that also are often tagged in this like very like presentist lens that are often problems that are often thought of like very of the now, like post 2000s digital problems. And that this book actually reveals the ways um, in a lot of different ways, both like very small and specific and very big and uh, music defining ways that some of these problems actually have have a much longer history. And that thinking about that, like really broad history, actually, um, A, (laughs) It makes it anytime someone says like, oh, this is a new issue. It's like, no, 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 it's it's a, it's most certainly not. And B gives allows you to like check these like longer both changes and longer continuities. And, and I think that's what this kind of historical perspective in general really brings to these kind of discussions. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you say that, you know, these aren't new problems because I mean, on so many levels, they're not new problems. I mean, maybe somebody out there is thinking, how is streaming and copyright and all that? Like, how is that like not a new problem? You know, like Spotify has only been around since, I don't know, whatever, 2000 or in the United States since like 2011. But you know, as you'll hear in the interview, that like the intersection of technology and copyright and just our general enjoyment of like listening to a fucking song has been uh, a major <laughs> debated issue uh, in Congress and uh, in, in the making of laws and trying to figure out who should earn money for what. And like, I think knowing that sort of context uh, maybe allows people to sort of view the current issues. Uh, with a different lens or maybe some fruitful perspective yeah so so before we like kind of go to the interview um there's kind of two broad themes that i really want to highlight for a second and the first is the long-term nature of piracy so as as we kind of all know and as we talk about, a lot about in the show like there's something i've started to call like the big lie um, which is basically that music's consumers turned on the record industry in the late 2000s, nearly brought the industry to its knees. The industry has clawed its way back to profitability through no fault of its own in what was like an unforeseen and unforeseeable like mugging, basically. And then that kind of has shaped and structured everything that they've done since. And I don't want to say that the rise of illegal downloading didn't have an effect on the music industry because it like clearly did. However, 
is a lie to say that this is the first time the music industry has faced piracy in a real way. And it's the first time, it's certainly not the first time that it's used the threat of piracy to try to force changes both in kind of the like the popular discussion around music and the kind of the restructure the business of music and to pass new laws to help the industry out. And so I actually kind of want to go even a little further and kind of break it down in these two two sub <laughs> sub themes, I guess. And and one is that like the reality of piracy, right? That there have been moments in the music industry and, and we, we talk a lot of, uh, about a number of them with Alex. Um when they're like, there are rises in piracy and like the industry survived them and like, whoa, presto changeo, it survived this one too. Like it's, the industry is fine. And so when they claim that like their hands are tied behind their, it's like, no, you survived. It's okay. And you survived home taping in the eighties. And the second, and, and we talked about this a little less on in the interview, but I think it's also really important to kind of just bring up as something in the back of our heads is the ways in which the music industry loves to talk about piracy and loves to talk yeah. about the idea that it's it's precious fruits are being stolen and this is uh, hurting songwriters and this is and it, it's it's you know hurting songwriters and hurting labels and hurting and stealing and yeah putting... framing it as a crime as people might might remember the i mean this isn't music but might remember the advertisements before a movie you know uh saying like you know contact the fbi if you know someone who's illegally filming or taping uh you know movies and his possible possibility for a twenty five thousand dollar reward and you're like what <laughs> do you remember back when like that was how bootlegs it was like a dude with like a video camera like holding it watching the lion king and like did you ever watch one of those bootlegs where like literally someone would sometimes like get up i never cross- I never saw one, but I know there was a Seinfeld episode about one. Oh, no. Am I remembering that? I think I've seen them. I feel like I've seen them, but maybe it's like, uh, like what is you real? Probably, yeah. <laughs> there you go, Sam. Seinfeld is uh, slowly bleeding into your actual memory, and you can't tell uh, the difference between the two. It's Anyways, it's yeah. Bad. So, like, no, definitely the way that, yeah, definitely the way that, that, that these corporations really is what I'm going to call them and the way that they, like, frame piracy and bootlegging as a crime in which we should all be ashamed of that god looks down from upon high and shakes his uh big finger at is 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 super interesting and definitely something to kind of think about as you hear the interview and and also just that it's used as a cudgel that they bring up when they want something from congress yep and yep. they do that a number of times and they will continue to do that and just something to be aware of yeah and yeah and we say something to be aware of because you know moving forward these issues are going to continue to pop up in our news feeds uh and if anybody who pays attention to what's going on in the music industry and especially with like new technologies coming out and all that stuff and so yeah definitely uh yeah pay attention to what the the big wigs are saying in the press releases or when they're uh sitting in front of a uh, a table of uh of congressmen and representatives so I guess the the second thing I wanted to bring up, I think that that's really important that that clearly connects to a lot of what we mm-hmm. talked about in on the show previously is like the contingency and like for lack of a better word fudginess <laughs> of a lot of like the legal constructions that define what music is and how music functions. Like yeah. One of the big like takeaways from this interview, from the book and from the interview especially, is like copyright law is not uniquely unsuited 
to describe and like interact with the state of technology today. Copyright law is literally always <laughs> behind the times and kind of produced by these befuddled congressmen and women, but back then congressmen who were like, what is this Victrola you have before me? And like never, like there's always this disjunct and it's always messy. And at one level, I think that's a result of the like very specific like <laughs> legislative contingencies in any kind of representative government. But also I think it reflects like a deeper thing that copyright laws are always at some level trying to nail jelly to the wall. Like it's always trying to define uh, and, and like turn art and human culture into like part of a for-profit system and it's always it never fits right and then you add quick changing technology and it just like <laughs> there's jelly everywhere and you're like covered in it from head to toe and like though it's some of it's on the wall sure but it's <laughs> and so i feel like that that's like a, a, a really important thing about but also is like and kind of resulting out of that is like the extent to which this is always like there's the law and then there's like what what the fuck happens on the ground and that a lot of times and, and, and we've discussed that at many points in this story of copyright law, the law doesn't actually just like it's like a map to a mountain. And then like you're looking at the map and then you're looking at the mountain and you're looking at the map and you're looking at the mountain and you're like, how? Like, <laughs> there's a, like, what, how do you apply this to that? And the point is that the way you apply this to that is lawyers and threats and kind of weird gray areas. And that in that zone, a lot of like how music actually functions as a commodity gets worked out. And I thought that Alex's work gets at that in like a really exciting and really thought provoking way. So without any more delay, Here's our interview with Alexey F. Cummings talking about her book, Democracy of Sound, Music Piracy and the Remaking of American Copyright in the 20th Century. Here comes the music. Right. And the ways in which piracy interacts with and shapes copyright. And so I wonder if we, if we could maybe start the uh, discussion a little bit by, by just taking like that 10,000 foot view and talking a little bit about like at the most basic level, because it really does. I feel like this book gets into some kind of like <laughs> fairly philosophical territory about like what a copyright is and whose interest it, it reflects. So so. Like what? What is copyright? How do you think about it? Well, that is really uh, such a great question because copyright started in um, England centuries ago as a way of censorship. The, the point of copyright was to give the right to make copies of printed literature. This was in the wake of the print revolution, right? So that the crown or the government could uh, control what was published. So we give you a license to copy things. Uh, and it's not owned by the author or the creator. It's owned by the printer, like to actually print this material. Um, so it really has its roots in 
a system of censorship because they didn't want like people publishing like anti-government pamphlets or something. So if you did that, we'll take your license away. We'll take your copyright away. It does eventually evolve into uh, a right that an author or an artist or a photographer or creator uh, owns themselves. But um, that is really the origin of it. And I think that is a little counterintuitive because people really think of copyright being very rooted in like the individualism of the creator, um, the artist, the genius, the writer, whatever. Um, but that's not really where it came from. So, so in some ways you're saying is like, it's always about this negotiation between what's best for society and what's best for the people putting, putting out whatever's being copyrighted. It's, it's evolved in fits and starts, man. I mean, like in the constitution, like the constitution, the American constitution is a fairly like thin document. I mean, it really doesn't go into great detail. Like most modern constitutions are much more detailed. Ours is very simple. One of the few things it actually mentions is um, the right to for inventors and authors to benefit from their works. Uh, there's a copyright clause. There's a clause about the post office. That's one of the only, like, there's not that much specifically in the Constitution. But still, like, the first copyright law in the U.S. was only, like, 14 years. So, I mean, it's always been a balance of, like, how much do we have to compensate, ensure the compensation of creators to keep them creating? In 1790, it seemed like 14 years was a good enough amount of time. Um, that did change over time. Uh, it eventually became 28 years, then it became 56 years, then it became the life of the author plus 50 years, then it became the life of the author plus 70 years once you get into the late 20th century. I guess that's one of the things I really want to get across in the book is that like this, it's not this transcendent sort of moral right. It has always been a, a practical proposition of like what is the right legal regime that will get people to keep writing books and writing songs and recording music, but also not like give them excessively strong rights. And I think this book is really about how we kind of moved away from that and this direction of like extremely expansive, extremely um, strict kind of rights and property and uh, intellectual property. But before I started you know, recording this podcast where we ended up talking about copyright more than I ever possibly imagined I could in my entire life. I, I kind of thought it was like a relatively clear cut thing. Like, you know, that there's a law and it says how copyright works. And and one of the things that I've definitely learned about how copyright is being worked through in the present and that, that this book illustrates really remarkably is the way that like there's so much gray area that is constantly kind of being shaped by a, a multitude of various interests. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I mean, I really wanted to stress in the book that copyright law, intellectual property law, patent law, trademark law, trade secrets law, all that really is like sort of the um, the proverbial sausage of like legislation that we like it's not this pristine sort of platonic ideal thing that exists outside of history. It really is like the result of just a bunch of people getting around a table and arguing over their manifold interests. So for example, when you have the copyright act of 1909, you have, uh, you have playwrights, you have songwriters, you have novelists, you have uh, professors, you have the new talking machine companies, which uh, include 
making records, making wax cylinders, making piano rolls. You have the piano roll, uh, the player piano manufacturers. You have all these people coming to Congress and they're saying, look, this is what I want. And it's very funny because like one of the most important things in the book is that you have these new, basically what are record companies, they call them talking machine companies at the time. You have record companies coming and saying, hey, we want the right to make sound recordings of songs written by composers and songwriters. We don't want to pay them, but we do want our recordings to be copyrighted as a distinct work. So like Enrico Caruso singing a song versus Madonna singing a song, it's still the same song, but like they're very different objects. They're very different cultural works. So the talking machine companies were saying, we want a sound recording copyright, but we also want to be able to use the work of songwriters uh, without pay. Of course, the songwriters are coming and saying these record companies are coming here and just recording versions of our work and not paying us. And it got into this whole like, you know, just indecipherable debate about like, so is this, I mean, like, I don't know, like great expectations is great expectations. It's just a fucking book. But like with this, it's like, well, if you record this song three different ways, are those three different works? Um, is uh, like they I even had an example in the book, I think of like saying, what if a professor recited a lecture about chemistry and then that was copyrighted and then he gave the same lecture again in the same words in the same way and it was recorded by another company? Is that a separate work or is it the same work? It's very complicated and confusing. And so the upshot, though, because I mean, I do think that this is like a pivotal moment <laughs> of like the injection of contingency <laughs> into this story, right? That there's this set of negotiations in uh, 1909, right? And the, the kind of the, the, which I think they're revising, the previous revision had been 1891, I think. So it hadn't been that long, but a lot of change technologically. And, and so kind of the upshot that comes out of these revisions is, is, um, revision to copyright law is kind of the basic playing field for the music industry going forward. I think that's the thing that is most confusing and baffling about all of it, which, which became, I guess, the basis for the book really is finding out that there was no actual copyright for sound recordings until 1972 in the United States. This just struck me as very bizarre. Like, so uh, any Beatles recording or uh uh, the Rolling Stones covering some other artist song, like that recording itself as an independent distinct work was not copyrightable. The only thing that was copyrightable really was the actual written musical composition, what the songwriter wrote. So there might be 15,000 different recordings of that song. The only thing that has the copyright is the song. And I, when I found this out, like doing my research, I was like, this is really weird. <laughs> like, um, how did this happen? So you have this long period between 1909 to 1972 where it's kind of sort of legal to bootleg recordings, but kind of not uh, like you are violating the songwriter's copyright when you uh, pirate these records, but there's actually no actual copyright for the recording itself. So you just have this bizarre gray area that uh, exists in the 30s, the 40s, and 50s. You get a lot of interesting people like sort of moving in the shadows there, um, making copies of records or even like recording broadcasts off of the radio and then making records of those without sort of authorization or permission. That is like a mind-blowing fact. So just <laughs> like 
let's just like take a second and, like, <laughs> so and like dwell in in the craziness of that so if you write a song you have rights to it if someone records a song makes a recording of that song you get a mechanical royalty right if someone performs that song you get a performance royalty at least by 1919 after like uh ascap gets going Rec- if if there's a recording of a song however the 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 company that produced that recording and is selling that recording doesn't have a copyright for that at all in national law until 1972 yeah i mean that is the really the compromise that comes out of 1909 is that they say to the songwriters okay fine like if a record company <laughs> makes a recording of your song you will get a royalty but it's not it's kind of like transaction costs right it's like um if you had to um uh i don't know negotiate with uh someone every single time you wanted to get in your car and drive to the store like that would be a huge imposition and be complicated so like if every single time a record company wanted or a band or singer wanted to perform a recording of a song uh, or make a recording of a song, I should say, and they had to go and negotiate with the songwriter, that would just introduce a huge amount of complication and difficulty and just make things much harder. So what Congress decided to do, and, and actually a really great compromise, in my opinion, is to create this compulsory licensing system, which said, okay, dude, fine, Victor Herbert, you write a fucking song. Enrico Caruso, you sing the song. Uh, okay, uh, Betty Wheats, you sing the song. And each company that makes a recording of that, they don't have to negotiate with the songwriter or the music publishing company that owns the copyright to the song. They pay a flat royalty that's decided by Congress, and it's automatic. Like, that's the mechanical royalty that you just alluded to. And so it might be like one cent, three cents, five cents per record that's sold goes to the songwriter and it's this very like seamless system that um really takes a lot of the negotiation and complication out of it which is like okay dudes songwriters get some money music publishing companies get some money record companies get to make records but they do technically have to pay this uh compulsory license but we also didn't give a copyright for the sound recording itself so this is like this is like such an interesting thing Music was like the first software. The piano roll that goes into the player piano or the wax cylinder that plays the music, it is an intermediary. It is a a thing that you put into another thing that makes a thing happen. It's not like opening a novel and just reading it and like, well, there's a text on the page, that's the novel. Or looking at a photograph, like that's the photograph. It's like you're actually putting a disc into a thing and each one of them is different. And they really had a hard time in 1909 figuring out, like, if there are 500 different recordings of a song, are they all different artistic works individually? Or how can, I mean, the songwriters were like, how can you have 15 different versions of the thing? It's just the one thing that I wrote. And they really just didn't know what to do with it at the time. So they just left it on the table and just said, okay, this is the deal. So from a modern perspective, I guess, like, in my head, like that would be total chaos and that like how does a record industry even get started if they can't have control over the goods that they're selling? But I guess 
it's actually not that big of a problem for them. <laughs> well, I would say that like it is true that the technologies of of copying were more difficult at a certain point. So you had people there were actually like record engraving machines that you could get. So you could actually like make a home engraving of a record, a copy of a record or make your own record at home in the 30s and 40s on like a shellac record. But that's like a very piecemeal, like kind of one by one way of production. Um, And there were like mafia associated sort of situations where they would own a a record pressing plant and make these on the side in like a very dubious illegal fashion. And that would be more like more like mass production. It wasn't impossible to make these recordings, but it was at least a little more difficult in the 30s and 40s. Once you start to see the development of magnetic tape as a technology in the 50s and 60s, then that really, it does become like much more dispersed and much more widespread. Yeah, I I feel, I feel as if like a reoccurring theme in this book and then also just copyright in general is lawmakers kind of not being able to catch up with technology or even like envision how much it's going to change and then being like oh fuck there's a shit ton of ways in which you can record music now uh and make bootlegs okay we got to make a law and then it's like the slow process of bureaucracy and then by the time they finally pass something it's already kind of too late (laughs) well no i mean like it's so funny that you say that because in 1908 i think there was a big Supreme Court case about this where it was about like whether the songwriters could sue the talking machine companies for making record sound recordings of their songs. And the Supreme Court, in the Supreme Court, in the actual Supreme Court, they had a big table where there was like wax cylinders, Victrolos, um, you know, piano rolls, all this put in front of these like, you know, justices who were like 150 yeah yeah stuffy ancient people yeah (laughs) they're looking at it in the same way that when they decided the sort of napster and limewire cases in the 90s i mean not in the 90s the 2000s or even later redigi that's another thing that i've written about like (laughs) they decide and it's a very interesting decision in this whitesmith decision they say look and she the songwriter can't sue the talking machine company for using their song as part of a sound recording because the sound recording itself is like a part in a machine. It's not like a copy of the copyrighted work. It's just, it's like a music box or something. It's like a little G-Wizmo. And they're like, look, we do actually, this is one of the things the Supreme Court does from time to time where they're like, look, we agree that this ruling is not right and we hope Congress will fix it. But at the moment, we can't give you a copy. I mean, we can't like let the songwriters or composers stop uh, talking machine companies, record companies from making uh, versions of their work because it's just not under the law. Like, how is this different from anything else? It's a very interesting moment because... They're basically telling Congress, like, you need to, like, sort this out. But, like, at the moment, we see a sound recording as just being, like, a mechanical part of a machine. And that's not the same thing as copying somebody's novel or photograph or something. I also wonder about kind of the the, the cultural meanings that um, hadn't quite adhered to recordings yet, maybe, and that, like, start to over this period of time. Like, uh, I'm just thinking about... Um, 
like there weren't really reissues in the, the 30s and 40s a lot of time there oh for sure there's, yeah. a, there's an idea that that i feel like that like music gets put out it gets consumed and then like there will be new music like why would you care about old music and in, in, in a world that's much more pop focused or you know new focused novelty focused the labels are going to have way more distribution so like pirates can start you know can chew a little bit at the margins but like if you can't get these physically very heavy things to stores all over the country, you're not going to sell that many of them. And that, that kind of leads me to, to one of, I think there's a lot of amazing details in this book, but I love the Hot Record Society. <laughs> yeah. So could you just tell us like a little bit about like who they were, what their deal was, and how they changed the history of music forever? <laughs> it's such a weird thing. I mean, these are like a bunch of just nerds, really, like, yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you say, right? Like, there weren't reissues. Like, sound recordings weren't viewed as uh, works of art, really, that needed to be um, curated or, like, maintained. It was kind of like, go <laughs> go sing into the little box, you idiot. Um, you know, and it's disposable, and it's transitory, it's transient. But in the 1930s, there was a group in the United States called the Hot Records Society, who were jazz fans, jazz collectors, all almost, I think, almost entirely white men who um, really loved jazz. And this is like, you have to understand that like the 1930s is like just slightly after jazz being accepted as a mainstream like form of music in the 1920s. But they were the first people saying like, this is important. We have to preserve this. We need to literally do preservation like these records by cripple clarence lofton or whatever um need to be reproduced maintained perpetuated preserved and so they kind of operate in a sort of like you said legal gray zone they are creating this idea that like this recorded music is not just a disposable pop product but like a thing that you actually should care about and sort of curate the like older music right it's like the music of the 30s is is trash it's, it's like the music of the the 20s that's like the good stuff yeah i mean it's kind of the beginning of hipsterism to some extent and but it is a really reevaluation of what music or sound recording is like you also have like opera aficionados because like the opera music market wasn't huge so there'd be people who would record um broadcasts of opera recording i mean of rock uh, opera performances and would record them in their homes and then make records and distribute them this is a product that really didn't have much economic value because there are just not that many people who want to spend 14 days listening to the ring cycle but they they were operating in this very like just just slightly out of the mainstream slightly out of the light and they were able to do it because technically uh these recordings weren't really property at the time. And so they, they eventually get some attention from the record labels, right? Who eventually are kind of like, it's not clear whether this is copyrighted or not. It's But like, we're going to threaten to sue you. But also maybe this stuff has some value. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the like biggest themes in this whole history is that like the things that pirates do send a signal to the industry of what's valuable. The record industry, the RIAA, when it was in its very early years, in like the early 50s, went to war against the pirates. They said, we're going to stop the pirates. But like it showed them that like people want reissues. This is not just a disposable product. Like The reason why there are pirates and bootleggers is that people want 
these older records from the 20s or 30s to be maintained. And the same thing happens in the 1960s, where there are all these bootlegs of Jimi Hendrix or Neil Young or the Beatles. And it shows that like, oh, people want this. Like, you know what? Actually, you don't have to put out just one Beatles record a year. Like people want their outtakes. They want the live show. They want they want Bob Dylan's basement tapes, which the record company and I assume Bob Dylan didn't think were worth anything. Um, but when they, that, Bob Dylan's basement tapes were actually maybe the first big, really big bootleg recording. And then uh, by like 1974 or 75, I think the record label actually put out an official basement tapes. So it's just like, it showed that people wanted live bootlegs. They wanted outtakes. They, this has happened over and over again. And so I think the most recent example of it really is um, the fact that Napster showed that people want streaming music and the record industry didn't want to do that, but now here we are. I stand in awe and I shake my face. You break your promise all over the place. You promised you love me, but what do I see? Just you coming and spilling juice over me. So I actually wanted to stick with the 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 the, the, the '60s uh, countercultural bootleg scene for a second because I think very this fun is, heady times that were going yeah, on. Yeah, this is yeah, a really this cool is really fun part part of the book. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I wonder if you could go into a little bit more detail, right, with with the with the basement tapes and how it gets, I guess, produced and and sold and and kind of turns into a. a a pretty thriving underground economy, right? The moment when the basement tapes break out, that is a real turning point because this is these are records. These aren't like magnetic tapes that are going out. It's the it's called the basement tapes, but the rec, the things that are actually being distributed as bootlegs are vinyl records. So they're being made by people who own record pressing facilities. Um and it, that's the first one. And then after that, you got the Beatles with um, their comeback uh, record that was put out, which was a lot of outtakes from Get Back and Let It Be. And the Dylan basement tapes were kind of like the big ones that just blew onto the scene in like 1967 or so. And then there were just, there was just a, a, a flood that opened of like Jimi Hendrix live recordings, uh, Elton John and... Uh, but these were like created by these people who are very interesting. They they claim to be like socialists to some extent. They're like, we're freeing music for the people and we're just taking the sound out. Of, they literally say we're taking the sound out of the air, like from a live recording or from a radio station and putting it on records and putting it out to the people. We operate in the shadows, obviously, because this is clearly semi-legal. They like rubber dubber is one of the big ones in the book, and um, they really present themselves as radicals who are trying to like liberate music. Like most radical organizations, they were kind of full of shit and um, had a whole internal hierarchy of their own. Like, but they were advancing this argument that like music should be free, and we're going to go to these shows, we're going to record this stuff. They they even used the fact that like a lot of Vietnam veterans were coming back like injured. And so they would like hide this huge like boom mic or something and a guy's like pants or jeans and he'd be like limping into the show and uh, the people wouldn't give him any trouble because um, 
he just saw all the guys injured, but um, really he was just going into like uh, bootleg, like record this live show. So there's a lot of shenanigans going on. There's this great section in the book about where um, it's a quote from what I believe is a Columbia student. And I thought it was really interesting because the student is, and obviously maybe this is just bullshit to make them like look good, but this idea that not only should music be free or it's like, you know, they're liberating music, but they're actually like liberating the artist from the labels in a, in a weird way. So he was peddling this idea that, oh, this is what the label wants to put out and how they want to present Bob Dylan. But obviously, like, you know, that's just like big corporation label bullshit. And like, we're freeing up like the real Bob Dylan. But what's, what gets lost in the conversation, which I think is really interesting, is like, well, what does Bob Dylan want? <laughs> and it just seems to be like lost in their in their sort of, uh, in their approach. And I, I don't know if you, do, do you just take that as like them just trying to, maintain their sort of semi-shady business and make them look like good or like do you think they actually kind of believe this or i don't know it's an interesting idea i think it's a lot of rationalization for sure or self-justification but i do think there is some actual sincerity to it which bob dylan doesn't know what to do with bob dylan's music we do we're going to make it all available like everything should be transparent everything should be available it's kind of like when, like, in sort of, sort of like postmodern, like, lit crit kind of class, they're like, it doesn't matter what John Steinbeck meant. We we read through the author. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, we see the greater meaning in it that maybe even, you know, Fitzgerald didn't understand. So in a way, it's kind of like that, which is like, it is a higher virtue to make sure that all these Jimi Hendrix live recordings get out, or Deep Purple or whatever, get out. And maybe the artist is uh, against it. Maybe they're for it. We don't know, but we think this is the right thing to do. I don't think it's. I don't think it's completely self-serving. Uh, I, I think there is a degree of actual belief in that. Yeah, yeah, and it's also interesting because it seems to me, and maybe I'm not thinking about it correctly, but it seems to me almost also an argument for a sort of a true free market, where it's like if we had everything, access to everything then like the music fan, you know, that would like decide like what would, you know, boil to the top and like what would actually be popular in a sense, which I, th I thought was kind of interesting. Well, I think it well. is the strain of the 60s uh, counterculture that became neoliberalism, right? Totally, totally. Yeah, 100%. Eliminate the middleman, give it straight to the people, um, just tear down the structures. Everything should be an instant market. And I think you do see that now in the sort of gig economy. You see it in SoundCloud rappers or whatever. Like or this whole NFT thing that's going on and the whole like blockchain. Mm -hmm. Like that's a huge argument with them. It's like, you know, get cut out the middleman, cut out the regulation kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and make the, the, the market as um, sort of seamless and fluid as possible. Just, you know, uh, I go on YouTube, I go on SoundCloud, I record something. People like it. That's it. I mean, that kind of did come out of um, the 60s counterculture to some extent. And um, there's a wonderful book. I don't know if you guys have read it by Fred Turner called From Counterculture to Cyberculture. I mean, he like really understood this very well. I mean, it's also interesting because I feel like it also this moment also gets at some of the very real like, contradictions or fault lines in copyright. I feel like just in that like if you think about copyright as like a kind of like, you know, a, a limited term monopoly that these record companies have on this music, 
it suggests that the record companies in some ways by, by hiring out artists produce something that has value and what's interesting about these these students and these uh, bootleggers in the 60s is they're kind of arguing at, at some level i mean <laughs> in addition to a whole bunch of justification and bullshit i feel like there's also there's an argument for the social value of music right that like dylan puts out music and some of the value you know we'd love to pay dylan someday it's our dream is, is i think one of the quotes in the book right um but like dylan puts out music part of the value of that music is produced by bob dylan but part of the value of that music is produced by like us all sitting around a campfire and listening to Bob Dylan or like thinking really hard about D Bob Dylan or about, you know, the mean, the social meanings and values that are ascri ascribed to this music. And so in some ways they're like, well, we do have a right to some of this music. Like we made part of it. And I feel like it's funny because like there is a, a little something there. I feel like. Right. I think that is very much like a use value versus exchange value argument. Right. Like it has inherent value to the extent that people enjoy it or like it, um, which is irrespective of like if it costs a dollar fifty or three dollars or five dollars in the market, like the exchange value. So it's like a very Marxist kind of thing in a way. It's like, yeah, the point of music is music. Like I do think that's I do think that's really what they're thinking. I mean, like, gosh, think about like Prince in the nineties. Like Prince was so angry with his record label that he like wrote slave on his face and his basically the conflict with Prince was that like they want to put one album out a year and then promote like two or three hit singles. What Prince wants to do because he's a maniac and a genius is to put out 5,000 albums a year because he just wants all of his output to be put out there and they don't want to do it. So he gets into conflict with them. He eventually gets out of the contract then he just starts pumping out his own music on his own label through like a direct mail system. And that's, you know, I mean, Prince had a very different idea of like what the purpose of music was and not just to be like a, a scarce uh, profit product on the market that has a high exchange value, but just like the music for its own sake, I guess. Moving away from these like more idealistic <laughs> um, visions of bootlegging, <laughs> In this period of time, in a bunch of different formats, both cassette tapes and vinyl records, you also get the rise of what seems like, you know, mafia-affiliated commercial large-scale pirating, where they're really just putting out for-profit records. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a person I write about in the book named Jerry Pettis um, in North Carolina. I thought this was so interesting because the real big pirating networks were kind of in places you wouldn't expect, like Charlotte, North Carolina. Just a nondescript warehouse um, on the outskirts of the city. And, you know, I mean, with anything, like there are certain enterprising people if they see... That's kind of the problem with this. It's like you could have idealistic socialist bootlegging, but like somebody's going to come along and say like, oh, I can make a, like, a lot of money off of this and just be doing like uh, pirate copies of Bee Gees records. And that is what happens. So there's this just bizarre <laughs> kind of alert. This is one of the most hilarious things I've found in any of my research where the FBI does this huge sting like across most of the East Coast, really, where they set up they set up a fake record shop in 
Long Island, on Long Island. And, like, they send two FBI agents in with, like, must, like, I don't know, probably, like, glued on mustaches and, like, long hair wigs, I would guess. Like, well, <laughs> to pretend to be hippie, like, record store owners. <laughs> and they make contacts with all these, like, pirate, um, you know, procurers, uh, I guess, or, or, or sellers who are just like, hey, you want, like, 45,000 Donna Summers bootleg tapes. Um, sure. Cool. And so they basically lure all these sellers into a trap. And then all at once in 1978, there's this um, coordinated like busting of all these like um, stores and these um, pro- especially production facilities, which were really just pumping out like copies of the most popular pop music and you know, just making a profit, just find like, like Americans do always like find some way to like weasel their way into like any concept and make um, money off of it. So that this is definitely not the sort of, um, this doesn't even have the veneer of this sort of idealistic socialist kind of bootlegging of the sixties. My understanding is as partially as a result of this kind of rising wave of bootlegging. And that's especially tied to cassette tapes, which really start hitting via eight track in the early seventies and by the cassettes we're more familiar with by what mid to late seventies. Well, that's an interesting story. I mean, like the whole concept of magnetic wire kind of like developed in, in Germany in the twenties and thirties, but like the economy was so bad there that it never really took off. And then here in the U S AT&T was essentially, uh, um, the bell system was basically a monopoly and they really tried to smother magnetic, uh, wire or tape recording um, in the 30s and 40s but once you get to the late 40s that's when like sort of the real to real like sort of the guy who like annoys his wife endlessly by creating lots of technology in their house and like I've got this huge hi-fi system I've got this real to real thing this is before cassette tapes but like it's basically it's still magnetic tape like this is like in the early 50s in suburban America people are listening to real to real tapes and it's not until the early sixties that you finally get this complete uh, weirdo named Ed Muntz who um, is, he's the original um, used cars, like crazy car salesman. He's the like, Oh, my prices are so crazy. Oh. Like uh, <laughs> he literally would like, I don't know, like take a rifle and shoot a car on, on a TV ad, like saying if, you don't buy this car for $700, I'm going to blow it up or something like, but like Edmonds, like, Oh, he's like, Oh, okay. So he's in the car business and he's, he actually is also in like the early TV business. Like he's making like really shitty TVs for poor people. He is one of the first people. He's the first person who creates like the four track tape. And then there is another guy, uh, Lear, who is, famous for the Lear Jets, who looks at what Muntz has done and creates the 8-track. But the most important thing, really, is the Philips um, Electronics Company, the Dutch company, um, that creates the compact cassette. And what they do is, like, the most significant thing, I think. They are one of the first, like, open-source people. We're going to create the compact cassette. Anybody can use it and, like, refine it or retweak it patent-free. But we're going to introduce this technology. And it is the best of all the technologies. It's better than four track. It's better than eight track. And it's like in 1963 or something. I don't know. 
I mean, it eventually becomes the dominant format. Obviously, um, the eight track is kind of like a big thing in the late sixties, early seventies, but uh, the compact cassette, what we think of when we think of in our minds, a cassette tape really came from Phillips and they just put it out there in this kind of, um, kind of Linux like kind of way. The, the big change, I mean, in addition to being a cheaper way to get high quality audio, it also allows people to easily have access to sound reproduction at home, right? Like not only can you go to a concert and make a tape of something, but you can dub tapes for your friends, right? Like home taping is killing the record industry. And, and my sense is that between high level commercial duplication this leads to kind of this uh like the the mafia like like uh you know pirates basically and the rise of the cassette tape all of a sudden what had been chill for, for five decades for the record industry all of a sudden stops being acceptable and it seems like the story that you tell is that there's kind of first there there are, are state laws and then eventually a national law that does finally in 76 bring create a copyright for records. Yeah, I mean, that is exactly what happens. There's a, a state-level sort of approach to this that it's interesting because, like, states are not able to really do copyrights. Like, copyright is a federal thing. It's a federal government thing. So in the states, California, New York, Tennessee, etc., in the 60s, they passed these laws um, saying you can't copy sound recordings. But that's an infinite thing. That's like you can never copy sound recordings. You can never copy and sell any sound recording, which is like an unlimited right, which is very different from the 56-year um, length of copyright at the time. Um, actually, it's 28 years, and then you can renew it for another 28, but still, basically 56 so copyright had always been limited. Copyright had always been like, we will give you uh, the right to earn money from this uh, for 14 or 28 or 56 years, the amount of time we think it's necessary for you to like earn some profit from it and be motivated to create it. Whereas these state level laws were just like, it's a ban across the board. And that kind of became the basis of the law that was passed um, in 1971, enforced in 1972, the Sound Recording Amendment, and then the Copyright Act of 1976, which dramatically expanded the length of copyright to the life of the author plus 50 years. Not just this fixed term from the beginning of publication, like from the moment you put this out there, you got 28 years to saying like, from the moment you put it out there, you've got the life of the author plus 50 years, which is a actually a much harder thing to figure out because you have to figure out how long did the author live and da, da, da. and also before 1976 if you wanted to have your work copyrighted you had to actually like register it with the copyright office after 1976 they basically said as soon as you write like a note in your like notes app on your iphone it is copyrighted like as soon as you make any product it's copyrighted you don't have to record it with copyrighted office it is just a huge difference before 1976 where like if you like put out a book and you don't register it with the copyright office, it goes immediately into the public domain and you don't have a copyright to it. After 1976, they've realized that there's like so many ways you can with computers, with magnetic tape, with 
you know, any or, or facsimile machines like Xerox machines. There are so many ways you could produce content. It it basically says that it's protected by copyright the minute you create it, as opposed to saying you have to register it. And that's a big change. So what's really interesting also is like these changes that happen in some ways. I'd really love to hear about like how you think these connect because at the same time, it seems like that this new legal infrastructure is put into place. There's also the rise of a whole new set of, of kind of, of, of musical forms and uh, aesthetics that are really based on kind of the, the creative postmodern reuse of other people's sounds. So like it just, it blows my mind that both <laughs> hip hop happens in the 70s and a new legal infrastructure that makes so much of what hip hop does kind of illegal happens at exactly the same time <laughs> do you think that's just chance or like is this something about like the way that society has started to think about recordings that gets kind of maybe like processed and and enacted in like very different ways this is this is what's so interesting about this like I could say, oh, this is all because of magnetic tape. This is all because of this one technology. But hip-hop emerged because of people playing vinyl records at the same time. It's so interesting to think about that. Like, we think about postmodern culture always being about, like, chopping and chopping up, like, um, information, editing an audio file, or, like, rewinding or fast-forwarding a tape. Like, but the real ground zero of this is the fucking Bronx when people are just playing two records kind of at the same time. It's a, it's a very analog technology. And I think that's really interesting. Just trying to connect the different threads here. It, it's also feels like both of them in some ways are like, if you think about like the hot record society, right. As saying, it's not about the song. It's about the performance and specific performances and like specific very micro things in recorded sound have intense cultural value and probably also monetary value. You, you could almost argue that hip hop on one side and the new copyright law on the other are like splitting those two parts, splitting that one idea into the two parts that the copyright law is like, no, these recordings, the very specific recordings have financial value and hip-hop is like this drum break has intense cultural value i guess that gets back to the exchange and use value kind of aspect of it right like i think that like what pirates and streamers and uh BitTorrent people and all have shown is that like this music has value in other ways that like the uh, in the existing industry doesn't really understand and they, it takes some time for them to assimilate it and understand it um, so yeah, absolutely. Like the reason why that law is passed is like that it's become very clear that there's lots of copying and pirating going on. Um, but at the same time, like a whole genre that's sort of based on pastiche and like collage is coming into being because this stuff is valuable. Like that's the reason why the law exists is that is valuable. And so you see these law, like these court cases in the 1980s there was one really important one, uh, Two Live Crew, where they had sampled, like the whole concept of sampling comes into play, right? You could be Romari fucking Bearden and like take a bunch of I own newspaper, like, you know, photos and make a, a collage, a painting out of that. 
and people wouldn't have a problem with it. But when Two Live Crew uses Roy Orbison's, like, I don't know, is it like Pretty Woman or one of them? Like, it goes to the Supreme Court, I think. Um, and basically they say Two Live Crew is okay. Like, this is a parody. This is using the sample of Roy Orbison is not uh, a problem. But at the same time, but also you have Bismarcky's song, Just a Friend. Oh, yeah. So, like, Bismarcky uses Gilbert O'Sullivan's song, um, Alone Again Naturally, as a sample in a song called Just a Friend. The courts, this is a federal court. I, I don't think this went to the Supreme Court, but they basically said, Piracy, sampling, is stealing, it's theft. You're stealing from Gilbert O'Sullivan and the songwriter and sound engineers and everybody who made this uh, little piece of sound that you were um, reproducing in your song in this kind of, you were, he was reproducing in this kind of ironic, satirical kind of way as the base of the song, but Bismarcky was ruled against and that was really the most pivotal case in the question of sampling, which is like, can I take seven seconds of a you know James Brown song and incorporate it into my like hip hop track? And basically, the federal government, federal courts said you can't. You have to negotiate them with them to see what the price is for that sample, which is the exact opposite of what Congress did in 1909, which is like setting up a system that is sort of automatic and functional, like. There's just a fixed rate, and like you record the song, you pay the compulsory license royalty, that's it. Uh, the sampling thing became a huge mess. Uh, something like Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys would have been impossible after this, because it's just layered and layered and layered with samples from everything. I mean, and, and you kind of, in, in kind of a turn to like the large scale political economy of music, um, you kind of argue that this change right this like the very limited like focused on controlling monopoly 1909 and the evolution of that into this kind of um, property rights are fairly sacred the investment that record companies have in this music is the important thing to safeguard it's kind of part of like a broader change in the u.s economy right as it stops being about making a ton of things and starts being about making ip making software yeah that is really the motivation behind the book but yeah i mean that is really what i was trying to get across like it's a big change like in the 1920s 1930s there was still a sense that like copyright was a monopoly these monopolistic rights need to be controlled and i think once you hit the economic crisis of the 1970s that's when things really change that Economic development at any cost is the main thing. We don't make things anymore. We make ideas. We make we don't make uh, cars and lamps and toaster ovens. We make uh, software or movies or music. Um, that that is really the ideological change that happens and the policy change that happens. It's it's a big fucking deal. Like this is just saying to you know the people in Youngstown or akron or wherever that like you don't matter anymore uh what we're doing now is pharmaceuticals and biotech and you know computer software that's what we're going to prioritize i really wanted to show that like 
there was a change to say we should give these uh, companies like Disney or whatever the maximum amount of rights because our economy depends on creating IP. And that's that's more important than the public interest of IP being available, which is what had been a prime consideration for policymakers in the progressive era or the New Deal, which is that like maybe we shouldn't give these people unlimited rights. Maybe copyright shouldn't last forever. Like maybe the public has an interest in the public domain. That really fell by the wayside. I think the deindustrialization crisis of the 70s and 80s was a big excuse, rationale, pretext for what happened in terms of intellectual property law. I mean, it's also really fascinating because, you know, seeing that as both like a, a, a moment of radical change and in the music industry in some ways continuity. I'm thinking about uh, you talk some kind of both at the beginning and, and close of your book about mixtapes and hip hop. And thinking about the ways in which this new approach towards protecting intellectual property at all costs, in some ways, like a supercharges forms of exploitation that the music industry had exerted over certainly the 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 communities of color, black especially black communities, uh, for pretty much the entirety of its existence. Right? That if we think about like early record companies as you know finding ways to efficiently separate black musicians from their intellectual property in some ways that this uh they continue to do that and and almost uh supercharge it by making these rights and these record companies rights over intellectual property last forever so you get people like they made a lot of money off of someone like 50 cent who comes up in new york city kind of on the mixtape circuit the illegal underground mixtape circuit but also at the same time that they're making a ton of money off of 50 cent they're also making it as difficult as possible for 50 cent and people like 50 cent to use music and have the kinds of musical culture that produced 50 cent in the first place yeah i mean i think this speaks to like the organic way that a lot of these things work right i mean the legal regime creates these alternative cultures like the hot record society or the mixtape hip-hop culture in the 90s and 2000s where it's like, well, yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, I can't make an actual record with all these things because I can't afford to pay for the samples, but I'll put it on a mixtape and then people will know how good I am. And then maybe I'll get a record label deal. Like there's this whole sort of informal uh, mixtape economy that, that arises because of these copyright laws. So, I mean, the laws create this other thing. I mean, they just have to, because people are going to be creative and like, they're going to create really cool things without like all their time negotiating a $300,000 like um, royalty thing. <laughs> yeah. That, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting point. It, it's, it's all, yeah, it's, it's, it's like the, the laws lead to sort of ways in subverting it. They're kind of in this relationship. I, Sam sent me a mixtape from like the nineties last night, <laughs> just kind of, I don't, not really maybe in preparation for this, but just sort of like in relation to this. And I was like, you know what? Like I'm going to, I'm going to go back and like listen to some of those like early 2000 mixtapes. And I found that, you know, like you could go on dat piff right now and like download like little Wayne's to drought three for completely for free <laughs> in like five seconds. And it's like, in 2021 that's like wild it's like wow i could just go get like an hour and a half of like free music like from lil wayne like that you know and it, it's it's interesting it's just which is almost like all the attempts i guess i'm trying to say to sort of like wrangle this and like 
to uh, make sure that, you know, uh, income and capital is being earned and like, you know, repaid and all that just leads to more creative ways of sort of like getting around the system or like even like causes it in a sense. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Super interesting. I think it does cause it. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a really dialectical kind of situation, right? Where Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, well, you can't do this. And then people are like, okay, well, we'll find some other way to do it because we want to do it. Like, like Bismarcky wasn't trying to screw over Gilbert O'Sullivan by using a sample. He just thought it was funny. And like, um, people want to do this stuff. They're going to do it and they might take BitTorrent. It might take Pirate Bay. It might, uh, I don't know. I think the thing that does happen though, is that like the industry eventually acknowledges that we can't fight this battle anymore. We can't pretend that we're just selling CDs and they do eventually give in to the streaming industry, which I think Spotify and Pandora and all of this are the direct children of Napster. It's like the reason why this exists is that basically users, listeners, fans, musicians, etc., showed that like, we're going to distribute music digitally. We're going to do it. So like you have to find a way to do it. And I think the Apple iTunes store was probably a first step in that, but then like Spotify and Pandora were another step I'm just saying, okay, let's just meet the consumers where they are. Let's meet the listeners where they are. We can't pretend that you're just going to like media player, Best Buy or something and like buying CDs. Like you have to admit that this is over, that like something different is going to exist. How that works is a big question, but all social media is is file sharing. Like almost all social media is just like creating copies of content and sharing with people. So we don't think of like Facebook or Instagram as being the same as Napster or LimeWire, but they actually are kind of the same. Appreciate it.